Hi, welcome to the Prescription Podcast. On this show, we present to you up-to-date facts on medical-related topics. We are your hosts. I'm Ian, a surgeon. I'm Zichin, a gastroenterologist. We're both practicing in Kuala Lumpur. Right, we are on Apple and Spotify Podcasts. Please follow us for updates and new episodes. And today, we are on episode number 15. We're talking about gastric cancer. Right. So I think we know gastric cancer is also known as stomach cancer. Yeah, mm. uh, maybe we will just use stomach cancer for a better understanding of for our listeners, right? Yep. So stomach cancer, we all know where stomach is. Yeah, the function of the stomach is to help digest food. Yeah, that's the main function of it. Okay. How many stomachs do we have? I know one. <laughs> is there another one? Well, it's just a joke. But yeah, I mean, cows have four. Yeah. Right? So. <laughs> no, you are getting there. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> moving on. Yeah, so generally food doesn't stay long in the stomach. Yeah, mm. under normal circumstances, you know, by two hours it moves down to the small bowels, and you know the absorption starts off from there. Okay, today's topic is on stomach cancer. Stomach cancer incidence globally. Yeah, as reported last year by the Global Cancer Foundation 2020. As the six highest cases reported among all other cancers, reported about a million cases last year, mm. and the death rate of about seven hundred and sixty-eight thousand. Pretty alarming, actually. That's that's yeah. worldwide. Yeah, that's worldwide. Yeah, that's, that's worldwide. worldwide. So Major. in Malaysia, mm. it's considered as moderate risk. Of course, not as high as colon cancer, breast cancer, cervical cancer, lung cancer, lung cancer as we yeah. mentioned earlier, but it's slightly lower down. Mm. So we know that we are in a multi-ethnic country. Yeah, Majority comprises of Malay, Chinese and Indian. Yep. So the cancer manifestation rate among different ethnics, Chinese comes first, mm. Mm, then followed by Malay, subsequently Indian. Yeah, but I think over the years, things have evolved a little bit. I think there is seen to be some increase in the Malays as well. Yeah. Probably yeah. because of the Notice change in, in, in diet. Probably. Yeah, one Malaysia, Probably. we eat everyone's food. Yeah, fusion diet. Yeah, that's <laughs> what we all like. <laughs> one Malaysia diet. Okay, all right. So I think probably people want to know how does one get stomach cancer? So are the risk factors? Yeah, what are the risk factors basically? So again, come back to diet. We've been talking about diet. Mm. Yeah, so that's what gastro is about, right? Uh, Well, (laughs) it's Malaysians as well, right? The first thing we see each other is have you eaten? Sudah makan? Yeah, plus the six meals a day. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Okay, so people tend to ask why Chinese a little bit more, right? Yeah. Yep. I think one of the main reasons is because Chinese food actually contains a lot, uh, a high salt. High yeah? salt. A high salt content, uh, a lot of preserved food that yeah. we consume, like our canned food, our salted vegetables. Salted yeah. meats. Yeah, salted meat. Which, yeah. I, which I still eat once a year, Chinese New Year. I think once a year is fine. Yeah. Right. I, I always say don't deprive yourself of food, but in good moderations, right. right? That would actually be one of the major risk factors as well that causes uh, increased incidence in stomach cancer in Chinese particularly. Yeah? Yep. Another risk factors are infection 
with Helicobacter pylori. Mm. In short, we call it H. pylori. Yep. It's a bacteria that can survive in the high acidity of the stomach environment. Yeah. So I think earlier on in the episode on gastritis, we mentioned a bit on H. pylori. Yeah. So we won't dwell too much into that. Yeah. But basically, know that that's a risk factor. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So so if you have diagnosed with H. pylori, you have to get it treated, and you have to make sure that is being eradicated. There are tests available. Yep. So what are the other common risk factors? Um, like any other cancer, smoking. Mm. Smoking is definitely associated with stomach cancer. I think anything that causes basically disruption or, or what we call as inflammation, chronic type of inflammation to the stomach lining and that eventually, if it's not treated, will lead to stomach cancer. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so I think what you are trying to tell our listeners probably if you have a persistent symptoms coming from the stomach, it is good to get it checked and look for the un- actual reason behind yeah. of a chronic inflammations. There may ultimately progress to something what we call atrophy. Yeah, uh, that would itself poses a risk of gastric cancer down yeah. the road. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned symptoms. I think we uh, definitely everyone will ask what are, you know, things that I may experience or one may experience before they get gastric cancer. I think the bulk of most people in the early stages don't really have symptoms, right? But if at all they do, it's pretty much like gastritis symptoms, right? Sometimes it can be just pain or vague pain or if you're having such alarming symptoms, things like if you start getting full quite fast, you know, not your usual amount that you can eat, maybe just unable to eat at all if you get stuck, especially if the cancer is in the early part of the stomach, there is some blockage, they, you know, tend to get blocked and they vomit out. Or in the later stages, they may have even more severe pain, right, if it gets bigger and it starts to invade into other organs, right? Yeah, I think that's mainly if you get symptoms from the stomach. Yes. Yeah. Something other than that, something something maybe a bit more subtle, you know, they may actually present with low blood count, we call anemia. Yep. Yeah. So the symptom of that would be feeling a bit lethargy, a little tired than your usual, a little reduced in effort tolerance. And also, other than you mentioned about feeling full quick, we call that early satiety. Sometimes uh, you may translate it as you don't have much appetite for food. And of course, a common symptom that we actually encounter is losing weight. Yeah. Let me throw a curveball question at you since uh, we're talking about low blood count. How, what is your threshold of doing a scope on a patient with low blood count? I mean, if you, take in, if you ask them the questions, you know, they do admit they're not very good with their diet, maybe less of iron-rich uh, or, or certain vitamins and they have low blood count, would you scope quite early? Treat first with vitamins and, uh, you know, minerals? You always send me trick questions, right? Yeah, of course. It's, yeah. That's the whole okay. idea, right? It makes it interesting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's not a straight answer for this, okay? Uh-huh. I will not jump into scope first, yeah. of course. Yeah, A bit more history to understand why. And also, if I have the luxury to look at the previous blood counts of this patient, if at all there is, right? I would also always like to compare. Um, a trend would be a very good marker for me to actually plan how would I want to investigate this patient, all right? Uh, I know we always like to blame on the vegetable diets and all that, but of course, in a patient who are 50 years old and above, I would be very cautious. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And of course, asking them symptoms of bleeding, 
other types of symptoms of subtle bleeding. You know, sometimes you get a little bit very, very dark stool and the smell is a little different and it's unlikely because of the food that contribute to it. Yes, that would trigger an alarm as well. Yep. Of course, looking at the other parameters to diagnose what type of low blood count is this, that would also help me. So, to escalate my investigations algorithm. So having said that, all in all, so there isn't a single cutoff point that, you know, if your hemoglobin is 10, 8, 9, you know, uh, only I will scope, I won't. You know, I won't give a typical cut, but as long as it's less than the normal recommended range um, from your lab, every lab has got their little bit different cutoff range for every single blood parameters. So I will use that as reference. Anything that's below the normal, I will investigate thoroughly. And of course, if I feel that endoscopy or any invasive procedure is indicated for a further diagnosis, uh, for further investigation to confirm my suspicions, yes, I would introduce yeah. an uh, endoscopy assessment. Yep. Wow. Pass the exam with flying colors. <laughs> no, actually, well, I, that's the reason why I asked that question, because, you know, I think a lot of times as patients, people might think that, you know, if I am presented with problem A, the solution is problem B. But what I'm trying to illustrate with that question is basically it's not as straightforward because there can be a lot of causes to uh, low blood count and it, it takes more than just sometimes investigations. It, it yeah, does. I know everyone likes to. Uh, well, sometimes, you know, in my clinic, I do have patients who first come in and say, I want to have a scope done. Yep. You know, it's sometimes very dangerous to do that and yes. to ask for that, you know, because for me personally, if I will want to move on to something invasive to investigate something, I always have my differential diagnosis, yep. yeah, the problems behind my mind. You know, I when I do this, I would expect A, B, C, D, you know, and what am I expecting out of what I'm doing? So I think that's very important to have a, a workflow before you actually approach a patient or a, 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 an individual, you know, yeah. who come with a certain complaint. Yeah, I think you mentioned differential diagnosis that just for the listeners out there just basically means a list of possibilities of the types of diagnosis and usually we rearrange that list of possibilities according to risk, right? Some people, you know, certain diagnosis might move up to the top and some might move down. And so, yeah, it's it's not so straightforward. And I, I just want to put that out so that everyone kind of understands what yeah. a doctor is trying to do yeah. or is thinking through while they, yeah. they treat someone. Yeah, There's so, always a thought process, yeah, right? So it's always a thought process. And before we jump to conclusion. Doctors right? not, uh, you know, staring through space or blanking out is probably <laughs> computing <laughs> in the mind. You know, the gears are moving. And yeah, okay, anyway, that's that's that. Uh, that's that, but yeah. So I think we've we've covered symptoms and you know a little bit on on how we investigate. So of course, I think patients, as we mentioned, have alarming symptoms. You know, uh, early satiety. You know, get full early on, or they have loss of appetite, a loss of weight, and they have some clear pain symptoms in the tummy and the ab abdomen. Probably, you know, what would you do next? How would you? work them up yeah so of course after all this you know and we will of course subject the patient for an endoscopy diagnosis mm. yeah um for an endoscopy procedure similar simply a camera test 
putting a camera through your mouth and then to have a look at the stomach. Yep. So sadly speaking in Malaysia, majority of them actually present quite late when yeah. they have symptoms. As we mentioned in all our previous cancer series, yeah. when you have symptoms and you present to us, many times are actually quite advanced staged. Mm. Yeah? So we do not have screening of gastric cancer in Malaysia yep. uh, simply because the incidence is not that high. Of course, you go back to cause analysis and all those things. You know, it doesn't warrant a national screening program. We can't right? justify for everyone justify. to, to get get some sort of screening. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Got you. But if you do have risk factor for gastric cancer, meaning you have a family history, you stand a little bit higher risk than anyone else. Um, having having family history of gastric cancer mm. and of course, history of H. pylori infections. And that has not been eradicated or not known if it's yes, fully eradicated. Yeah. 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 Having a look, yeah, when you have some symptoms, yeah, that's warranted. Mm -hmm. So then back down to, I mentioned about advanced stage, yeah. Um, there are a few stages in gastric cancer mm -hmm. like other cancers, yep. right? It's still stage one to stage four, right? Yep. Three and four are very advanced. Stage one, two are slightly earlier, of course, with better prognosis if it's diagnosed earlier. When you're detected at a very early stage, yeah, stage zero, stage one, we have uh, endoscopy are quite advanced these days. We can actually remove the lesions, yeah, just by doing the endoscopic procedures yep. yeah, and you may not require an extensive surgery. Yeah. So endoscopic yeah. procedure for everyone's uh, information is basically, when we talk about endoscopy, it's basically the camera through the mouth and all the procedure is done through that. No cuts on the tummy, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's no cuts. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But if it's in the advanced stage, do you want to comment a bit more? Uh, at, on the advanced stage, of course, I think once we see it's actually quite big on endoscopy, we need to stage the patient further. When we talk about stage, we're basically looking to see if it is uh, grown big enough uh, that it's grown into the surrounding organs or if it has spread to other organs far away whether it's the liver, whether it's the lungs, whether it's the bones, okay? So, of course, once it has spread far away, like even the liver or the lungs or even the bones, we call that stage four, those don't receive surgery unless in very, very specific indications. Uh, then it leaves us with like stage three, which is what we say locally advanced. Probably, maybe not really invaded into our other organs or if it is, it's still somewhat treatable by surgery. And of course, if there are spread to the surrounding lymph nodes, those are also stage 3. So when we talk about surgery for gastric cancer, um, it's basically removing the stomach depending on where the cancer is and how much the stomach will be determined to be removed. And of course, the, as I mentioned earlier on, the surrounding lymph nodes has to be removed. Uh, this, of course, follows with probably based on the final staging, they will need further treatment like chemotherapy, rarely radiotherapy unless maybe it's a little bit more uh, at the beginning part of the stomach. So if the patient removes the stomach, they will have some changes in the way eat and all. But basically, they will offer surgery if it's stage 3, followed by most likely chemotherapy or extra treatment. So... Sounds quite complex, right? Okay. <laughs> So yeah. there are different layers of stomach, right? If it's only involving the first layer, yeah. right? Yes, it's saved, yeah. right? But it starts involving the second layer and then it's a little bit technical challenging. And then, of course, depending on how deep it is, maybe surgery, surgery 
is warranted. So stage two, three, probably surgery. Okay. Okay. So how's the outcome of gastric cancer? Well, depending on the stage, I guess with all cancers, it's always depending on the stage, right? The more advanced the outcome is, is poorer with a good surgery. I suppose surgery. if it's early stage stomach cancer, the survival is definitely better compared to those presented with advanced stage. But the number we have here for our local data, overall, overall survival was actually 71% at one year yeah. and 43% stage at three, three is about years. 32% for five years. Yeah. Stage three okay. with lymph nodes. I think not just the stage, but the type of stomach cancer as well. There are a few types. There are some that has better outcomes and some with poorer outcomes. So again, depending on that. Yeah. 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 So so what we're trying to put out here is many factors actually affects the prognosis or the outcome. Yeah, or the or the response to treatment with the gastric cancer. So type of cancers, the location of cancers, the stage when you're presented, when you're diagnosed, all these are factors that will contribute to the uh, short term and the long term outcome of the disease. Okay. Yep. So just to summarize, basically we look at the risk factors, and some of these actually are modifiable, right? In terms of food, in terms of smoking. So again, if it's uh, about how well you take care of yourself, it's all about lifestyle modification. It's actually really, really important. I think we don't think about it enough, but it actually does. So yeah, that. But any, if any, anything at all, if anyone has symptoms, which we've also mentioned, you need to get it checked out. And uh, after treatment, if it persists, then you might need to really look into investigating, especially if it doesn't improve. Definitely, if there are alarming symptoms that we mentioned earlier on, it should be investigated further. Right? And we briefly talked about some of the treatments, which I think if, unfortunately, one is diagnosed, what they have to go through, right? I think that's, in a nutshell, what we talked about today. Yep. I think thank you for tuning in. We yep. have talked quite a bit, and I think it's shared quite a bit on gastric cancer and how do we detect and how do we treat so i think with that thank you if you have any questions please email us at prescription pod p-r-e-s-c-r-i-p-t-i-o-n-p-o-d at gmail.com with that thank you thank you